Section 20 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Stitsky. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by Jefferson Davis, Volume 1A. Part 2, Chapter 10. A Recapitulation remarkable propositions of mr governor morris in the convention of seventeen eighty seven and their fate further testimony hamilton madison washington marshall etc later theories mr webster his views at various periods speech at capon springs state rights not a sectional theory looking back for a moment at the ground over which we have gone i think it may be fairly asserted that the following propositions have been clearly and fully established one that the states of which the american union was formed from the moment when they emerged from their colonial or provincial condition became severally sovereign free and independent states not one state or nation two that the union formed under the articles of confederation was a compact between the states in which these attributes of sovereignty freedom and independence were expressly asserted and guaranteed three that in forming the more perfect union of the constitution afterward adopted the same contracting powers formed an amended compact without any surrender of these attributes of sovereignty freedom and independence either expressed or implied on the contrary that by the tenth amendment of the constitution limiting the power of the government to its express grants they distinctly guarded against the presumption of a surrender of anything by implication Four that political sovereignty resides neither in individual citizens nor in unorganized masses nor in fractional subdivisions of a community but in the people of an organized political body five that no republican form of government in the sense in which that expression is used in the constitution and was generally understood by the founders of the union whether it be the government of a state or of a confederation of states is possessed of any sovereignty whatever but merely exercises certain powers delegated by the sovereign authority of the people and subject to recall and reassumption by the same authority that conferred them six that the people who organized the first confederation the people who dissolved it the people who ordained and established the constitution which succeeded it the only people in fine known or referred to in the phraseology of that period whether the term was used collectively or distributively were the people of the respective states each acting separately and with absolute independence of the others seven that in forming and adopting the constitution the states or the people of the states terms which when used with reference to acts performed in a sovereign capacity are precisely equivalent to each other formed a new government but no new people and that consequently no new sovereignty was created for sovereignty in an american republic can belong only to a people never to a government and that the federal government is entitled to exercise only the powers delegated to it by the people of the respective states eight that the term people in the preamble to the constitution and in the tenth amendment is used distributively that the only people of the united states known to the constitution are the people of each state in the union that no such political community or corporate unit as one people of the united states then existed has ever been organized or yet exists 
and that no political action by the people of the United States in the aggregate has ever taken place, or ever can take place, under the Constitution. The fictitious idea of one people of the United States, contradicted in the last paragraph, has been so impressed upon the popular mind by false teaching, by careless and vicious phraseology, and by the ever-present spectacle of a great government, with its army and navy, its custom-houses and post-offices, its multitude of office-holders, and the splendid prizes which it offers to political ambition, that the tearing away of these illusions and presentation of the original fabric, which they have overgrown and hidden from view, have no doubt been unwelcome, distasteful, and even repellent to some of my readers. The artificial splendor which makes the deception attractive is even employed as an argument to prove its reality. The glitter of the powers delegated to the agent serves to obscure the perception of the sovereign power of the principal by whom they are conferred, as by the unpractised eye the showy costume and conspicuous functions of the drum major are mistaken for emblems of chieftaincy, while the misuse or ambiguous use of the term union and its congeners contributes to increase the confusion. So much the more need for insisting upon the elementary truths which have been obscured by these specious sophistries. The reader really desirous of ascertaining truth is therefore again cautioned against confounding two ideas so essentially distinct as that of government, which is derivative, dependent, and subordinate, with that of the people as an organized political community which is sovereign, without any other self-imposed limitations, and such as proceed from the general principles of the personal rights of man. It has been said in a foregoing chapter that the authors of the Constitution could scarcely have anticipated the idea of such a community as the people of the United States in one mass. Perhaps this expression needs some little qualification, for there is rarely a fallacy, however stupendous, that is wholly original. A careful examination of the records of the Convention of 1787 exhibits one or perhaps two instances of such a suggestion both by the same person and the result in each case is strikingly significant the original proposition made concerning the office of president of the united states contemplated his election by the congress or as it was termed by the proposer the national legislature on the seventeenth of july this proposition being under consideration mr governor morris moved that the words national legislature be stricken out and the citizens of the united states inserted the proposition was supported by mr james wilson both of these gentlemen being delegates from pennsylvania and both among the most earnest advocates of centralism in the convention now it is not at all certain that mr morris had in view an election by the citizens of the united states in the aggregate voting as one people the language of his proposition is entirely consistent with the idea of as election by the citizens of each state, voting separately and independently, though it is ambiguous and may admit of the other construction. But this is immaterial. The proposition was submitted to a vote and received the approval of only one state, Pennsylvania, of which Mr. Morris and Mr. Wilson were both representatives. Nine states voted against it. Six days afterward, July 23rd, in a discussion of the proposed ratification of the Constitution by conventions of the people of each state, Mr. Governor Morris, as we learn from Mr. Madison, moved that the reference of the plan, that is, of the proposed Constitution, 
be made to one general convention chosen and authorized by the people to consider amend and establish the same here the issue seems to have been more distinctly made between the two ideas of people of the states and one people in the aggregate the fate of the latter is briefly recorded in the two words not seconded mr morris was a man of distinguished ability great personal influence and undoubted patriotism but out of all that assemblage comprising as it did such admitted friends of centralism as hamilton king wilson randolph pinckney and others there was not one to sustain him in the proposition to incorporate into the constitution that theory which now predominates the theory on which was waged the late bloody war which was called a war for the union it failed for one of a second and does not even appear in the official journal of the convention the very fact that such a suggestion was made would be unknown to us but for the record kept by mr madison the extracts which have been given in treating of special branches of the subject from the writings and speeches of the framers of the constitution and other statesmen of that period afford ample proof of their entire and almost unanimous accord with the principles which have been established on the authority of the constitution itself the acts of ratification by the several states and other attestations of the highest authority and validity i am well aware that isolated expressions may be found in the reports of debates on the general and state conventions and other public bodies indicating the existence of individual opinions seemingly inconsistent with these principles that loose and confused ideas were sometimes expressed with regard to sovereignty the relations between governments and people and kindred subjects and that while the plan of the constitution was under discussion and before it was definitely reduced to its present shape there were earnest advocates in the convention of a more consolidated system with a stronger central government but these expressions of individual opinion only prove the existence of a small minority of dissentients from the principles generally entertained and which finally prevailed in the formation of the constitution none of these ever avowed such extravagance of doctrine as are promulgated in this generation no statesman of that day would have ventured to risk his reputation by construing an obligation to support the constitution as an obligation to adhere to the federal government a construction which would have ensured the sweeping away of any plan of union embodying it by a tempest of popular indignation from every quarter of the country none of them suggested such an idea as that of the amalgamation of the people of the states into one consolidated mass unless it was suggested by mr governor morris in the proposition above referred to in which he stood alone among the delegates of twelve sovereign states assembled in convention as to the features of centralism or nationalism which they did advocate all the ability of this little minority of really gifted men failed to secure the incorporation of any one of them into the constitution or to obtain their recognition by any of the ratifying states on the contrary the very men who had been the leading advocates of such theories on failing to secure their adoption loyally accepted the result and became the ablest and most efficient supporters of the principles which had prevailed thus mr hamilton who had favored the plan of a president and senate both elected to hold office for life or during good behavior with the veto power in congress on the action of the state legislatures became through the federalist in conjunction with his associates mr madison and mr jay 
the most distinguished expounder and advocate of the Constitution, as then proposed and afterward ratified, with all its federal and state rights features. In the ninth number of that remarkable series of political essays, he quotes, adopts, and applies to the then-proposed Constitution Montesquieu's description of a Confederate Republic, a term which he, Hamilton, repeatedly employs. In the eighty-first number of the same series, replying to apprehensions expressed by some that a state might be brought before the federal courts to answer as defendant in suits instituted against her, he repels the idea in these plain and conclusive terms. The italics are my own. It is inherent in the nature of sovereignty not to be amenable to the suit of any individual without its consent. This is the general sense and the general practice of mankind, and the exemption as one of the attributes of sovereignty is now enjoyed by the government of every state in the Union. Unless, therefore, there is a surrender of this immunity in the plan of the Convention, it will remain with the states, and the danger intimated must be merely ideal. The contracts between a nation and individuals are only binding on the conscience of the sovereign, and have no pretensions to a compulsive force. They confer no right of action, independent of the sovereign will. To what purpose would it be to authorize suits against states for the debts they owe? How could recoveries be enforced? It is evident that it could not be done without waging war against the contracting state, and to ascribe to the federal courts by mere implication, and in destruction of a pre-existing right of the state governments, a power which would involve such a consequence would be altogether forced and unwarranted. This extract is very significant, clearly showing that Mr. Hamilton assumed, as indisputed propositions in the first place, that the state was the sovereign. Secondly, that this sovereignty could not be alienated unless by express surrender. Thirdly, that no surrender had been made. And fourthly, that the idea of applying coercion to a state, even to enforce the fulfillment of a duty, would be equivalent to waging war against a state. It was altogether forced and unwarrantable. In a subsequent number, Mr. Hamilton, replying to the objection that the Constitution contains no bill or declaration of rights, argues that it was entirely unnecessary because in reality the people, that is, of course, the people respectively of the several states, who were the only people known to the Constitution or to the country, had surrendered nothing of their inherent sovereignty, but retained it unimpaired. He says, Here in strictness the people surrender nothing, and as they retain everything, they have no need of particular reservations. And again, I go further and affirm that bills of rights, in the sense and to the extent they are contended for, are not only unnecessary in the proposed Constitution, but would be absolutely dangerous. They would contain various exceptions to powers not granted, and on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall not be done which there is no power to do? Could language be more clear or more complete in vindication of the principles laid down in this work? Mr. Hamilton declares, in effect, that the grants to the federal government and the Constitution are not surrenders, but delegations of power by the people of the states, that sovereignty remains intact where it was before, and that the delegations of power were strictly limited to those expressly granted 
in this merely anticipating the Tenth Amendment afterward adopted. Finally, in the concluding article of the Federalist, he bears emphatic testimony to the same principles, in the remark that every Constitution for the United States must inevitably consist of a great variety of particulars in which thirteen independent states are to be accommodated in their interest or opinions of interest. Hence, the necessity of molding and arranging all the particulars which are to compose the whole in such a manner as to satisfy all the parties to the compact. There is no intimation here or anywhere else of the existence of such an idea as that of the aggregated people of one great consolidated state. It is an incidental enunciation of the same truth soon afterward asserted by Madison in the Virginia Convention, that the people who ordained and established a constitution were not the people is composing one great body, but the people is composing thirteen sovereignties. Mr. Madison, in the Philadelphia Convention, had at first held views of the sort of government which was desirable to organize, similar to those of Mr. Hamilton, though more moderate in extent. He, too, however, cordially conformed to the modifications in them made by his colleagues, and was no less zealous and eminent in defending and expounding the Constitution as finally adopted. His interpretation of its fundamental principles is so fully shown in the extracts which have already been given from his contributions to the Federalists and speeches in the Virginia Convention that it would be superfluous to make any additional citation from them. The evidence of Hamilton and Madison, two of the most eminent of the authors of the Constitution, and the two preeminent contemporary expounders of its meaning, is the most valuable that could be afforded for its interpretation. That of all the other statesmen of the period only tends to confirm the same conclusions. The illustrious Washington, who presided over the Philadelphia Convention in his correspondence, repeatedly refers to the proposed Union as a confederacy of states or a confederated government, and to the several states as acceding or signifying their accession to it in ratifying the Constitution. He refers to the Constitution itself as a compact or treaty, and classifies it among compacts or treaties between men, bodies of men, or countries. Writing to Count Rochambeau on January 8, 1788, he says that the proposed Constitution is to be submitted to the conventions chosen by the people in the several states, and by them approved or rejected, showing that he understood by people of the United States who were to ordain and establish it. These same people, that is, the people of the several states, he says in a letter to Lafayette, April 28, 1788, retain everything they do not, by express terms, give up. In a letter written to Benjamin Lincoln, October 26, 1788, he refers to the expectation that North Carolina will accede to the Union, and adds, Whoever shall be found to enjoy the confidence of the states so far as to be elected vice president, etc., showing that in the confederated government, as he termed it, the states were still to act independently, even in the selection of officers of general government. He wrote to General Knox, June 17, 1788, I cannot but hope that the states which may be disposed to make a secession will think often and seriously on the consequences. June 28, 1788, he wrote to General Pinckney that New Hampshire had acceded to the new Confederacy, and in reference to North Carolina, I should be astonished if that state should withdraw from the Union. 
I shall add but two other citations. They are from speeches of John Marshall, afterward the most distinguished Chief Justice of the United States, who has certainly never been regarded as holding high view of state rights, in the Virginia Convention of 1788. In the first case, he was speaking of the power of the states over the militia, and is thus reported, The state governments did not derive their powers from the general government, but each government derived its powers from the people, and each was to act according to the powers given it. Would any gentleman deny this? Could any man say that this power was not retained by the states as they had not given it away? For, says he, does not a power remain till it is given away? The state legislatures had power to command and govern their militia before, and have it still, undeniably, unless there be something in this Constitution that takes it away. He concluded by observing that the power of governing the militia was not vested in the states by implication, because being possessed of it antecedently to the adoption of the government, and not being divested of it by any grant or restriction in the Constitution, they must necessarily be as fully possessed of it as they had ever been, and it could not be said that the states derived any powers from that system, but retained them, though not acknowledged in any part of it. In the other case, the special subject was the power of the federal judiciary. Mr. Marshall said, with regard to this, I hope that no gentleman will think that a state can be called at the bar of the federal court. Is there no such case at present? Are there not many cases in which the legislature of Virginia is a party, and yet the state is not sued? Is it rational to suppose that the sovereign power shall be dragged before a court? authorities to the same effect might be multiplied indefinitely by quotation from nearly all the most eminent statesmen and patriots of that brilliant period my limits however permit me only to refer those in quest of more exhaustive information to the original records or to the republic of republics in which will be found a most valuable collection and condensation of the teaching of the fathers on the subject there was no dissent at that period from the interpretation of the Constitution which I have set forth, as given by its authors, except in the objections made by its adversaries. Those objections were refuted and silenced until revived, long afterward, and presented as the true interpretation by the school of which Judge Story was the most effective founder. At an earlier period, but when he had already served for several years in Congress and had attained the full maturity of his powers, Mr. Webster held the views which were presented in a memorial to Congress of Citizens of Boston, December 15, 1819, relative to the admission of Missouri, drawn up and signed by a committee of which he was chairman, and which also included amongst its members Mr. Josiah Quincy. He speaks of the states as enjoying the exclusive possession of sovereignty over their own territory, calls the United States the American Confederacy, and says, the only parties to the Constitution contemplated by it originally were the thirteen confederated states. And again, as between the original states, the representation rests on compact and plighted faith, and your memorialists have no wish that the compact should be disturbed, or that plighted faith in the slightest degree violated. It is satisfactory to know that in the closing year of his life, when looking retrospectively, with judgment undisturbed by any extraneous influence, he uttered views of the government which must stand the test of severest scrutiny and defy the storms of agitation, for they are founded on the rock of truth. In letters written and addresses delivered during the administration of Mr. Fillmore, 
he repeatedly applies to the Constitution the term compact, which, in 1833, he had so vehemently repudiated. In his speech at Capon Springs, Virginia, in 1851, he says, If the South were to violate any part of the Constitution intentionally and systematically, and persist in doing so year after year, and no remedy could be had, would the North be any longer bound to the rest of it? And if the North were deliberately, habitually, and of fixed purpose to disregard one part of it, would the South be bound any longer to observe its other obligations? How absurd it is to suppose that when different parties enter into a compact for certain purposes, either can disregard any one provision, and expect nevertheless the other to observe the rest. I have not hesitated to say, and I repeat, that if the northern states refuse willfully and deliberately to carry into effect that part of the Constitution which respects the restoration of fugitive slaves, and Congress provide no remedy, the South would no longer be bound to observe the compact. A bargain cannot be broken on one side and still bind the other side. The principles which have been set forth in the foregoing chapters, although they had come to be considered as peculiarly Southern, were not sectional in their origin. In the beginning of earlier years of our history, they were cherished as faithfully and guarded as jealously in Massachusetts and New Hampshire as in Virginia or South Carolina. It was in these principles that I was nurtured. I have frankly proclaimed them during my whole life, always contending in the Senate of the United States against what I believe to be the mistaken construction of the Constitution taught by Mr. Webster and his adherents. While I honored the genius of that great man and held friendly personal relations with him, I considered his doctrines on these points, or rather the doctrines advocated by him during the most conspicuous and influential portions of his public career, to be mischievous and the more dangerous to the welfare of the country and the liberties of mankind on account of the signal ability and magnificent eloquence with which they were argued. End of chapter 10. Recording by Sean Stipsky, Kingman, Arizona.